0: Welcome to the Mountain and Valley Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kip Wilkinson. This podcast exists to share the stories of everyday people, to discuss the difficult moments in life, the amazing triumphant times, and the journey in between. We all have a story to tell, and we hope this podcast helps you in telling your own. In this episode, we had the honor to talk with Chase Replogle. Chase is a pastor, writer, and podcaster from Missouri. We had the opportunity to hear about how Chase grew up in a Christian home, but came to understand that his faith hinged entirely on his relationship with Jesus. We also had the opportunity to discuss the craft of reading and writing, as well as Chase's perspective as a pastor during the COVID-19 pandemic. But I'll let him tell you the story.
1: My Chase Replogle, and uh, first and foremost, I'm a pastor here in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, I also, uh, as we may get into in conversation, am, am a term that's often used bivocational. So I work a job in addition to pastoring, I do freelance web design and development. And then, if that wasn't enough, uh, lately I've been doing a lot more writing publicly and some podcasting, and so uh, it keeps me busy with that. But I have a couple kids and am married, and uh, uh, my story coming to faith, you know, uh, like a lot of people. Sometimes I would I would think I didn't have a testimony something dramatic at least I grew up in a great Christian home I grew up um in a great church and at a really early age, uh, felt myself uh, drawn to the Lord and asking uh, him to come into my heart as you do as a child and being baptized. And I early on, I, I sort of had a path. I thought I was going to go into law school through, even sort of at the end of high school, I had kind of been preparing for that with some scholarship opportunities. And at a, a youth summer camp, uh, really clearly felt the Lord call me into ministry and uh, much to my parents' confusion, they were sort of first-generation Christians, and I decided to throw away scholarships to universities they had heard of and go to a small Midwest Bible college they had not heard of, and uh, so we spent a lot of time processing that, but through confirmation, really felt like that was what the Lord was doing, and uh, it was in that first year of Bible college that I don't know the language to use for it other than it was kind of a spiritual awakening in the same way that so much of American culture and sort of this colonial period before the Great Awakening was was Christian. I was Christian. I, I believe I was saved. I had had experiences in confirmation. Um, but that first year of Bible college, and this sounds strange and almost like stupidly simple, but I had this like profound realization of Christ being personal and center to faith. And so much of, I think, what had characterized my faith before had been a lot of uh, going to a large public high school. It was, I stand for these values or behave this way. And it had a lot to do with my conduct and sort of the church that I was a part of and that tradition. And something that first year of Bible college made that experience of Christ a really personal experience. And uh, I hesitate to say I got saved in that moment, but it felt in some ways like a salvation experience. Like even though I was... Going into ministry at that point, it was like a very definitive moment I remember of thinking, Christ, I want you to be Lord and Savior, not just Savior, right? I don't want to just be saved. I want my life to be committed to you in a more meaningful way. And that becoming a kind of personal experience that I haven't had before. So when people talk to me about salvation experience, I often, sometimes I'll say shorthand, I got saved as a kid. Uh, But in the back of my mind, I think it's always that story, that sort of moment in a dorm room alone that I come back to and think, man, there was something really that crystallized that solidified in that moment for me of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. I think that's something, I think about this a lot with my kids. I've got two young kids that are um, six and three. And it's funny, I was just thinking the other day about probably the path it's going right now, they'll grow up believing right and i see that already in my son who's six and my daughter behind and our faith especially as a pastor but even beyond that just in in our home and in our times together before bread and prayer around meals um you know we're raising them into this faith and i see them sort of very naturally sort of coming into that and growing into it and i think you know hmm like will they have that same experience of feeling like they didn't have a testimony or somehow they missed out from that dramatic story but uh man the lord The Lord's grace has been so good to me in in so many ways through that experience that I think it was a blessing. And so I think that's something, anytime we have that sense, because I know people as a pastor, I hear this too. Like, I feel like I don't have a dramatic story. I think that's really a sign of gratitude for parents. Uh, My parents did get radically saved to have a kind of gratitude or respect for them that I had the benefit of being raised into that faith. And so I always try to turn around and think, man, that's something to really be appreciative for to their honor. There is always the works righteousness piece A feeling like, particularly as a pastor, I remember there was this experience I sort of alluded to. I went to a large uh, high school, so I graduated 622 kids in my class. My wife, alternatively, had six kids in her class. <laughs> she went to a very small Christian school. So I had this very sort of, and you know, the school I went to was, um, you know, I had many, many friends that weren't saved. I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activities, and they all knew that I was a Christian. And it was it was easy for that to become my identity and to sort of rest my identity in that po- in that part, um, it was in some ways in some ways it was easy to live out those convictions because I was expected of me, I was known for that, and to not would feel like I was sacrificing more than sort of a moral conviction. It was my identity at stake. I remember coming to Bible college for the first time, and all of a sudden, every single person in school with me was basically the exact same as me. They all were leaders in their youth group, and they were all studying for the same thing. And it was as strange as it sounds. It was almost an identity crisis of. I don't know who I am when we're all the same person, like this was easy before. And in some ways, early on in that experience, I had to come to terms with, okay, who I am as a Christian is not just what I do, what I don't do, this sort of uh, external identity of being a Christian over and against people that aren't around me. Um, It really forced me to figure out who I was as a person and also to recognize some of the ways ambition and identity were creeping into what it was going to mean to be a pastor. And that was a long process of learning to figure out who I am in Christ what it means to be content in that, to quiet some of those ambitions that are really not holy ambitions, but sort of ambitions for my own ego, my own identity. Um, you know, there's always the, the sin temptation so many of us struggle with, but really beneath the surface, I think that sense of contentment and faithfulness in who God has me to be was one of the things that was fueling a lot of the other sins that might be symptomatic of that, that bigger one, contentment, identity in Christ. yeah, And it works itself out in all sorts of little ways, right? Like, you know, often for me, one of the ways I would see it, particularly when I was younger was exaggeration. I always wanted to impress people. I always wanted to have the most interesting story or to have something interesting to say. And you can start to fudge on the truth or skim over details or inflate things. And you come to realize like, okay, why am I lying? That's not just I'm lying because I'm a liar and I'm a sinner, right? No, no, no. There's something beneath the surface there. And for me, it was that sort of identity like caring about how i was perceived and how people were seeing me and not being able to just trust that to christ but wanting to like improve it and impress and so tracking those things down deeper i think you always begin to find more significant things beneath the sin beneath the surface that was the case for me yeah so this is the season of uh of covid i'm not sure when this will uh release but there's a pretty good bet that we'll still be in the midst of it unless you release this a year from now so uh You know, this has been an interesting season as a pastor because one of the things I've witnessed is, uh, how different people can respond to the same situation. I've seen different extremes within my church, within the community, um, and I've really been we've been doing a thing in our church where we've been going early on, we started walking through some of the psalms. When we were right in the middle of studying the book of, of Romans, and when we had to move online, it felt like dragging people through 45 minute online sermons of Romans was not the right move. And I felt pastorally there were like things people needed for the moment. So we started looking at some psalms and then we picked up doing the Psalms of Ascent. So Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And we actually this Sunday will be our last one. We'll be doing Psalm 134. And one of the things that struck me about the Psalms in this moment was the combination of lament and hope that you have both of these existing, sometimes back to back, sometimes in the same Psalm and trying to understand what it is right now in this season. Well, one of the biggest things this season has revealed is how little control we actually have, right? You know, you listen to politicians even, and I think the the thing no one will say is really no one knows what to do. No one can solve the problem. This is one of those things we just don't have the kind of control over. We wish we did. Um, and there's, there's a great line in a, per, uh, Uh, Walker Percy novel where he says that uh, the only thing that men feared more than the bomb, he's talking about the atomic age the only thing men feared more than that the bomb would fall is that the bomb wouldn't fall and what he's capturing is this idea of the only thing worse than something terrible happening is nothing at all happening and this inner need we all have to sort of be a part of something big, something great. And I sensed in myself really early on that happening with COVID, right? That churches were going to step up and be heroic and that this was sort of my moment to lead. And then real quick, you come to realize, nope, I have no clue how to do, how to make any impact in this. It turns out uh, I've been classified as unessential. And then on top of that, I have to stay home. And all of the things I had counted on as sort of foundational seemed to sort of collapse. And you get back to this place where I think the Psalms teaches us to do well, to hold on to these sort of two extreme experiences, what it means to lament, the world is broken. And it the realization that we can't fix it, right? But then also this other extreme of hope that we know how this story ends. Our God is bigger and in control, even in these moments. And if Christians can learn that as I've been wrestling to practice that, right? It's one thing to sort of feel it on a Sunday morning, but to live that out throughout the week. Um, We do something that the world is desperately searching for, right? Because right now it feels like you have to live politically in one of those two extremes. Everything's good. Hope, nothing's going to drag me down or only lament everything's terrible, everything's broken, the Christian's ability to sort of live those Psalms out simultaneously, I think is something we're called to do, to lament with the world, but also hope in the midst of that that loss and lament. Um, that's a hard lesson that I think the church is learning, and, and I hope I'm learning through this process as well.
2: checked out your blog uh very (laughs) quite a big fan of a lot of your writing and i was interested by you having a meat allergy do you care to talk about that a little bit
1: I'd be happy to. It sounds strange. It always I always feel the need to justify this conversation by saying there's an article in National Geographic, so it doesn't make me sound too crazy. This is a real thing that I'm talking about. I uh, I live in the Ozarks, and uh, growing up here, a part of my childhood was ticks and chiggers. I don't know if you're that may disgust some people, but if you're from a region that has them, you know that's part of summer. Uh, growing up, I always had them three and a half years ago. Um, I pulled a couple ticks off me. I was at my parents' house near where we live in the woods and didn't think a thing about it. Um, in fact, didn't even make this connection till later, but a few weeks later, um, I started, uh, I thought what I had was strep throat my throat turned out, it was actually swelling up and closing. And then one day I sort of got real flush and hot and rolled back my sleeves and my whole body was covered in hives, which I've never had hives in my life. To be honest with you, I didn't know what they were at first. Uh, So I started seeing a doctor because it was getting progressively worse. Migraines were setting in, could not figure, we knew we were, I was having some sort of an allergic reaction to something. We were trying everything. You know, I've never been allergic to anything in my life, but we're changing shampoos and laundry detergents and I'm changing, getting off my, my vitamins that I was taking and trying to figure out what this could be. And I started to notice a correlation that when I would eat beef, which I did quite frequently, That my symptoms would be more severe the next day and so i started googling one night can you become allergic to to meat and found out that there is a tick-borne disease called alpha galactose alpha gal for short uh, that the tick actually introduce a carbohydrate that's, that's common in mammals into your bloodstream. Your immune system fights it off and then has a blueprint. And the next time you eat and digest mammal, it uh, your body sort of attacks itself. Your immune system does. So went to the doctor, got diagnosed. Uh, I officially have alpha-gal. So to clarify, I am allergic to anything mammal. So... Uh, pork, beef. For me, a huge blow because I'm a deer hunter. I'm a bacon cheeseburger kind of guy. So this is the irony of all ironies. You know, I've deer hunted and processed a deer myself every year since with my dad, since I was able to sit beside him in the woods. So, uh, but any, any meat like that, anything dairy, and then I have to be really careful about cross-contamination at restaurants. I can eat chicken, but if they throw that chicken on the grill next to your burger, I'm having reactions. So it's been a major lifestyle adjustment. And I'll say, this is real shame for you meat eaters. When I travel, I tend to eat vegan because if you go into a vegan restaurant, you know, there's no chance of cross-contamination with dairy. So, uh, if, if I had heard myself say that, five years ago, I would have laughed because that's such been a, such a major lifestyle adjustment for me. But uh, yeah, something I've come to live with over the last few years.
0: Wow. I, I, that would be really h- hard for me. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was for me too. It's like all things in life. You, you do what you have to do. you know. And i uh, the good news is I'm probably in the best shape that I've ever been. So there's been some positive. I try to stay positive about it.
0: There
2: you go. <laughs> well, I feel like the positive is it's better to be vegan today than it was even five years ago with some of the options that are in existence now
1: yeah that's absolutely the truth and even where i live in springfield which we don't have a single vegan restaurant there's some restaurants that are starting to have vegan menus or at least and then some of the local grocery stores are carrying more options so uh yeah there's still some places i go where you know you don't ask for the vegan menu because you'll get a weird a weird look but more and more i'm finding options so yeah it is getting better you're right
0: i know you mentioned hunting already and I've, i've heard you talk about hunting before um Has that changed the way you go about that? Or have you like transitioned into like foul hunting or fishing or anything like that?
1: You know, I've always, um, my dad and I, I grew up, we always deer hunted every year. And I have the last three years since I've had this, I have not deer hunted, which has been, like I said, I've been doing that since I was probably six or seven, you know, old enough to sit by him in the woods. So that's been a big adjustment, but I've always, uh, I've always bird hunted too. And so we like to quail hunt and pheasant hunt. I've got a bird dog. And so that's, it's doubled my energy cause I can eat all the quail and pheasant that I can, uh, that I can take. So it's, uh, it's, it renewed that interest even more. Uh, But, yeah, I like to fish. It's the Ozarks here, so a lot of people hunt and fish, and we've got some great— I love to turkey hunt, some of the best turkey hunting in the countries here where I live. And so, yeah, definitely still get outside to do that with tick-repellent pants and socks that you can buy from REI. So those are highly recommended.
2: (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Switching gears a little bit, what got you started in web design? Uh,
1: You know, in high school, I did some print design. And, uh, this is back in the, you know, the early two thousands when websites were definitely around, but, um, a lot of companies still didn't have them. And so a lot of ministries that I'd kind of volunteered with, or some, you know, family friends who might've had a business, they were all sort of trying to get websites up and they would ask me because I did some freelance print design, do you do web? And I'd say, no, you know, sorry. And eventually I said, you know what? I need to learn this. This is where, this is the economic incentive, right? This is where all the business seems to be. And so I started teaching myself, which back then was a lot easier than it is today. It was, things were just a lot simpler and sort of, I've learned as that industry has grown, Um, but sort of taught myself and, you know, knocked out some, some not that great websites in the beginning and learned and got a little bit better along the way and have been really thankful for it because it's, it's fit really well with um, I always thought it was something I'd walk away from. Like, you know, when I became a pastor, I'd be done. But it's it's turned out it's helped us plant a church and created a lot of financial freedom for my family and had some real benefits to pastoring for me. So I'm thankful for it.
2: Well, and, and that's a perfect transition. Speaking of pastoring and web design, what's it like being a bivocational pastor?
1: This season has been harder than most just because uh, the COVID pandemic has created um, so much more complexity around pastoring, the need for quicker decision making and and changing processes and systems, and it's required a lot more. But previous to this, I really felt like I had kind of gotten into a groove of that work life balance, and being self employed, it, it really helps because I my schedule can be flexible. I can take time off to do hospital visits or to have lunch with somebody, or usually Fridays are my church day where I'm focused on sermon preparation. Uh, And the thing it has helped me do is it's really forced me to prioritize what is it I want to accomplish as a pastor. And so for me, that's primarily been, I want to know the people that are in my congregation personally. I want to be prepared when I step in the pulpit to preach the word to those people. And I want to have time to pray for those people that I pastor and for the church. And so I really try what, if it's outside of those priorities, can someone else do it? Uh, Does it need to be done? Which sometimes that answer is no. And so it's really forced me to be very focused on what it is God's asked me to do as a pastor of this particular congregation. And then the other thing it's done, I'm always frank about is it's, you know, it's, it's allowed us when the church finances might be tight, it doesn't mean, you know, my ability to feed my family is, is tight. It's been able to separate those two stresses in a way that's, been really healthy i'm not you know god may a day may come when god asks me to do it full-time and i'd be happy to be faithful to it i'm not against full-time pastoring but particularly as a church planner it's given us a lot of flexibility and i think helped a lot with the stress of those early days in, in a really positive way
2: what are some of the difficulties that you face with that pre-covid
1: mm-hmm. uh People don't always understand. I'd always get this question. So, like, when are you going to be a full time pastor? When are you going to, you know, are you? And it's like, well, I'm kind of doing that now, right? (laughs) Like, like I do feel like I've been pastoral to this congregation. So there's always that piece of it. And then it is there. There are times um, our church could do more if I was full time. But the flip side of that is, you know, our church is budgeted this year to give about 25% of what we bring in to missions and then local projects. Um, I would have to take the majority of that out of the church. The church is probably at a place where I could be full-time. But all of a sudden, every offering counts, <laughs> you know, every dollar that comes in counts. Um, and to put that sort of stress on the church, it, it feels like we're able to do more because I'm able to be bivocational. It's forced other people in the church to step up. Sometimes that can be a challenge, uh, finding people to be able to help, finding the right people. Although in my mind, that's also a positive. It's involved more people. But I think everybody knows it's a it, you know it's a, you have to be really on top of your schedule. You have to really stick to what is your priority. And the truth is, if I was full time, who knows? Maybe the church would have grown faster. Maybe we could have done more. Um, I think you really have to sense what God is doing and try to be faithful to it, recognizing it can be different in different times and different seasons, different contexts. And this so far has felt like what God was asking us to do.
0: I love that. I mean, that really shows your heart for the church that it's more about your calling than it is a paycheck. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, I do want to transition back to hopefully our last COVID question because I don't want to talk about COVID anymore. I've got a
1: lot of COVID questions left. (laughs) So I'll start asking you guys questions next.
0: Bring them on. Um, on a, on a practical level, what do you believe Christians should do in response to COVID-19 as like just an individual personal level I've know i seen a lot of divisive stuff out there being shared, Um, just a lot of fearfulness, um, all of that mainly being on social media, of course, but I know it can be a little hard for people to know what to do or what to believe, so what do you think Christians should be doing on an individual level?
1: Yeah, I've seen that um, firsthand as well, too. I've seen it in my own congregation, and I've recognized that people, um, right, wrong, or otherwise— see the situation very differently i have people in my congregation who do not feel safe returning until there's a vaccine um, and i have people in my congregation who don't want to come if they're forced to wear a mask which our city currently has a, uh, an ordinance for um, i preached on this a few weeks ago in in a normally I'm, I'm sort of an expository preacher i'm usually trying to really spend my time in the text and and i did we were on psalm 131 Um, And I I really was focused on it, but I felt the need to sort of speak a little more directly to my congregation and to myself as well, too. And one of the things I tried to point out to them is I remember a a college professor I had um, who said that, uh, he would preach hundreds of hours of lectures in an academic school year. And he realized that if he was lucky, his students 10 years later would remember 1% of what he had said in all those hours. And this is probably true. If you think back to college courses, uh, he said, uh, they would not remember what was the most important information from the class. They wouldn't remember what was most important to get a good grade on a test. He said they would remember the 1% of the content he was most passionate about the thing that he said. And believed and felt the most is usually what they would associate with him and remember. And I was pointing out to my congregation, I have all sorts of opinions about COVID. I have ideas. I have things I would like to see happen and not happen. I have political theories. I have all sorts of of opinions about what's happening right now. But my big fear is that during this season, because so much of it has captured our energy and our minds and our attention, that the world is going to look at us and associate with us That 1%, the thing that we're most vocal about on Facebook, the thing that we're most passionate about arguing for, the thing we're making a stand for. And I ask my congregation to be really intentional about this season, particularly as we move into a political election that's coming up, that they are in control of what that 1% is that people associate with them. And they don't let their emotions, their fears, their frustrations dilute that 1% into being some conspiracy theory or political view or idea solution. For me, I was so serious about this. I sat down and wrote out a series of statements. I have it on my desk, just saying, these are some of the things that in the next six months, if somebody looked at me or read my articles or went to my Facebook, these are the things I would want them to associate with me. This is the 1% that I want. And it's not who I'm voting for. It's not, although that matters and I actually care about that more than some people might realize. It's not just a political view or how I think COVID should or shouldn't be handled. Although I do have opinions on that, like everyone else it's Christ is my hope, right? It's a willingness to sacrifice self-interest for the good of others. It's stewarding my responsibilities to a congregation, to my wife, to my family, to love my actual neighbors that I know, not just some abstract neighbor that I'm ranting or talking about online. God puts actual people in front of me. How do I care for those people? Um, I made this list and encouraged my congregation to do the same. Maybe some of those things are different for different people, but at least know what it is that you're communicating is most important to you. And don't risk that just being whatever rant at 11 o'clock at night you felt the need to post on Facebook.
2: Yeah, you you definitely want to be mindful of what your legacy is going to be during this time.
1: Yeah, because that's in some ways we're saying to the world, if this is the thing I'm most passionate about, we're saying, this is my good news, right? This is my gospel. This is my message. This is the thing I'm willing to take a stand for. And at the end of the day, particularly, I mean, I'll say wearing a mask is not that thing for me, right? Regardless of whether I think it works or doesn't, I'm just not going to die on that hill, right? And there's a long list of those things, not because I have a political incentive not to, but because there's something else I'm so passionate about. I don't want to spend that I want to be able to have that for this thing that I believe and care even more deeply about, which is my faith, the hope that I have in Christ.
2: So moving on to more random question. Do you happen to play any instruments?
1: I do. So I uh, in high school, I played saxophone. I uh, loved playing a jazz band. And then in college, I had a little four-piece jazz combo. We'd play like weddings and dinners and stuff. So I've always loved jazz. Uh, as you get older, saxophone's a little bit of a hard instrument to just sit around and play in the house, right? So I uh, I actually bought a few years ago a mandolin. I love bluegrass music as well. And I am terrible at it. I can basically play things in the key of G. That's about it. Uh, but I chop along with some bluegrass songs and much to my wife's sort of annoyance as she rolls her eyes. I play the f- three or four songs that I know over and over and over. Uh, I don't seem to be progressing at all, but those are my, uh, those are my instruments. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer you should be able to play whether you're good or not, right? Like you don't have to be an expert. Just if you enjoy it, just play along. So, yep, I do play.
2: <laughs> so is being a bluegrass fan, is there another instrument that you are interested in learning at some point?
1: You know I've always thought learning to play dobro would be awesome like a steel guitar but I hear that is one of the most like difficult and you have to be like good with pitch, right? You have to like really be able to hear. And I don't know if my skill set is that good, right? So it would take a lot of work. At this point in my life, and you know when you learn a new instrument, there's that awkward phase. Well, when you're six and you play twinkle, twinkle, little star, everyone thinks it's kind of cute and cool. But when you're 36 and you play twinkle, twinkle, it impresses nobody, right? So there's that long, awkward phase of learning a new instrument where no one's impressed. I don't have the stamina for that right now. So we'll see, Maybe maybe down the road.
2: That's amazing. A much better answer than I was expecting. <laughs> so another random one. Um, how has being a father changed your perspective on who God is?
1: Yeah, that's a a question that is still in process for me. I've got young kids, so there's stuff that's continuing to evolve. But I will say one thing that's already been clear is uh, my son, Will, is a lot like me. Like we're wired the same way. And it's it's been an interesting experience because I... I'll see situations happen and I can see his sort of wheels turning and I know what he's thinking because he and I think a lot alike. And wh- like helping him process things has really helped forced me to understand more about myself too, right? It's forced me to think about how I handle that or how I think about that. And that experience has given me a little more Uh, sympathy is a strange word to use towards myself, understanding, maybe it is, maybe it's sympathy, a little bit more of like, this is why I feel that way or act that way. And that's helped me a lot in understanding my relationship with others and in my relationship with God. Um, There's always the experience of feeling like, you know, the fact that Christ, God as our heavenly father, loves us more than I love my son, uh, puts that love into a perspective that's hard to to even comprehend, right? How deep your love is for a, a child, but that God would love us more. Um, your failures as a father, all we highlight, his success as a heavenly father. Um, but learning learning more about myself through my kids that then changes the dynamic between me and God as this father relationship has been one that I'm, I'm sort of just walking into, and I think there's more there to uncover.
2: Who or what sparked your passion for writing?
1: For me, it's always been about books. Um, I wasn't always a reader growing up. I sort of, it's a funny thing to say, but I sort of felt like I discovered books in college. Uh, really what it was, was I discovered there were people writing about things I was interested in. I just hadn't come across books like that. It's not that I, I probably knew they existed. I just hadn't opened them up, you know? And so I started finding books that were speaking to me and resonating with me, and it sort of lit a fire in for me for reading. And so for people who, I think anyone who loves reading and loves books, there's always that piece of you that's like, I should write a book. I love books, right? It feels sort of natural. Um, I have started, I've been writing for a lot of years and for a long time I didn't do very much of it publicly. I just didn't feel like, well, number one, I didn't know what I had. If I didn't know if it was good. I didn't know if it was helpful. And also because I didn't know exactly what I was supposed to be writing about, too. I'm, I'm kind of thankful I didn't put all of that out there, although the exercise of it was good, because a lot of it was just, well, we talk about learning an instrument. A lot of it is uh, is mimicking, right? Like, you love that particular artist, and I want to play guitar like they do, or I love Sonny Rollins as a sax player. How do I get that sound on my tenor sax, right? Uh, and a lot of my early writing was that sort of thing, too, right? Like, wow, that book meant a lot to me. I should write a book like that, which turns out, you have the better book and the one that inspired you. People just should read it. Uh, but that process was still good of learning. And the more I did it, the more I just felt like this is something God's, I couldn't kick the habit of it, right? I couldn't get it out of my mind. Like this was something God was leading me into and, and sort of years of faithfulness just nurtured more of that. So it feels like it's been sort of a long path coming into it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Cause I know one of the biggest pieces of advice you get as a writer is you got to read first.
1: Yeah, I think good writing is, I think it's, Two, two things. And I hate, I need a better word for this. If you guys have one, I say it's taste, which sounds so presumptuous, right? And pretentious. Like t- I have good tastes because I'm a writer. What I re- really mean by it is you have to read enough to be able to recognize what works and what doesn't like, why is that particular book good? Or why is that book stood the test of time? Or why is that book having a certain impact? Doesn't mean you even have to do that or emulate it, but you've got to get, you've got to read enough to begin to recognize and hear, right? Like there's acquired taste for good writing. And then the much harder task is you have to have enough, um, enough objectivity with yourself to recognize the difference between your writing and that writing. And that's really hard to do. You've got to be able to recognize why your writing isn't working and why that writing is working and give yourself sort of the time and space to, to improve, right? And that, that's really hard because when you write something, I still do this, you want it to be good. So you tend to bias how you read it by that by that want more than what's actually on the page in front of you, and it's always a battle of objectivity. How do I be really objective about what's good, what's not, what's working, what isn't? It's hard.
2: So I feel like reading's an obvious answer to my next question. Um, but if there's anything else, please please feel free to elaborate. Where do you find inspiration for your whatever you're writing, whether it's uh, a short little piece for your blog or your, the book you're working on.
1: Yeah. So, so, maybe a little surprisingly, I would put reading second. Um, usually for me, the inspiration comes from, from life and pastoring. And what I mean by that is, um, I tend to write about things. I tend to write as a way of investigating things that I, I know that I don't know enough about. So, um, I do a lot of writing on masculinity and topics around it, partly because those are just areas I've never felt like I had a handle on a good answer. Or as a pastor, I'd be talking with young men And they would be asking me questions and I just, I knew the answers I was giving were sort of stock answers and not actually all that helpful or (laughs) insightful to their situation, right? And realizing, man, I really, I have not come to terms with this myself. I haven't been able to articulate this in a meaningful way myself. And so I know I'm not articulating it in a meaningful way to them. So a lot of times what gets me interested, I I tend to write some on culture, uh, particularly movies, which seems these days like it's more and more kids movies, because that's what is on in my house. Uh, But I oftentimes will see one of these movies and start thinking, man, that's interesting. They made that choice, or they cast that character this way, or, ooh, there's some real cultural themes coming out. And that'll get me sort of digging into the story behind the movie and who wrote it and sort of some of the perspectives and reading what other people, dots they've connected. So usually for me, and that's also true with cultural stuff, I start picking up books because I'm trying to answer some of these questions. So usually it goes a pastoral situation or a personal situation gets me asking questions. I then tend to do a lot of reading around that, trying to figure it out for myself, a lot of writing, outlining, just trying to figure out what is true? What do I think? How would I articulate that in a meaningful way? And then usually the writing flows out of that process of discovery. So I don't, I don't tend to write until I figure it out. Usually I try to figure it out, but in the process I'm building outlines and creating these sort of arguments, if you'll let me use the word for, for the writing that comes next.
0: So you recently got your uh, first publishing contract, which congratulations, that's a really big deal. Yeah, thanks. Um, could you tell our listeners what this book will be about?
1: Sure. So, um, anybody who follows my podcast or some of my writing will know that, um, I've been, I've done a lot of writing over the last few years on Samson. Um, I read Samson's story as, I think it's a good millennial male story because Samson is constantly looking for adventure. He's constantly after romance and exploit and he's feels held back by the tradition of his family, his people, this Nazarite vow, which by the way, he didn't make, he was born into this sort of strange backward way of living. And he's constantly instead uh, infatuated with all things Philistine, he's drawn to these Philistine cities. And what he's really dealing with is a question of identity. So a lot of my own sort of wrestlings with identity were getting worked out in the Samson story, uh, you know, trying to find who I am by this Adventure, which by the way, is is everything happening in hero movie narratives that come out today too, right? To know who you are, you have to go on an adventure, you have to sacrifice the expectations, the conventions of where you're from to go find yourself out there on the horizon in in some sort of uh, adventurous story. Uh, Samson is sort of the reverse of that. He goes down that path and it all betrays him. It's not just Delilah that betrays him. It's it's uh, all of this sort of searching for identity and what he can achieve and find. He really comes back to himself in a great little line at the end of Samson's story. He's chained up in prison. They've shaved his head. He's lost his power. And it says, but the hair began to grow back on his head. And I sort of had this realization that our identity in Christ is like that. It's not something you can produce. You can't grow hair. You can't like bear down and say, give me more of it right now. Yet it, it there it is, right? It's you, but it's not something you force. It's, and I see identity being that way. It's me, but it's something I receive, not something I can just achieve. So uh, I've been working on the Samson Project and with projects like that, when you're pitching publishers, they often want to know what you're working on as a second or a third book. And I'd also been working on some stuff around the storyline of David, particularly around uh, wholeness, integrity, sort of inventorying and taking responsibility for everything in your life, and then some stuff on Moses. And so the publisher came back and said, uh, you know, it'd be interesting if you maybe took several of these characters and put them in one book. So, we developed kind of what we talk, I've been talking about as the masculine instincts. They're not the only masculine instincts, but the book looks at four of these masculine instincts. And the instincts are an instinct for adventure, for ambition, for reputation, and independence. And they look at the lives of Samson, uh, of Moses, David, and Abraham to look at those instincts. And what the book tries to do is say um, there's a. There's a tough conversation around masculinity happening right now in which one camp says that it's toxic and it needs to be deconstructed and abandoned and socially re-engineered. And on the other side, that it's salvific and you need to indulge it and embrace it and be the man with all the instincts of masculinity. You need to accept those for what they are. The Christians have always, I think, taken a third way that doesn't get brought into that conversation. And it recognizes the instincts that we experience as the attributes of masculinity, but it calls men to mature those things into something useful, not just to abandon them, but to to turn those instincts into something by faith that can actually be a virtue. So what the book tries to do is not say, shame on you men for feeling ambition or feeling a need for adventure. It's really to say, yeah, but what what does faith do to change that instinct into something that's good for you, for your family, for your community, to your walk with Christ uh, in a way that's positive, a way of virtue.
0: That's cool. I've never, I've never really thought about Samson or the other biblical characters in terms of the hero's journey, so I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Um, do you have a, a title yet that people could be looking for?
1: Yeah, you know, so I don't know how much you guys know with publishing books, but I, this is a new manuscript. So I'm in the process of writing right now. So I have a, and uh, the other thing you know about writing books is it takes way longer than you think it does. So I owe Zondervan a completed manuscript by February of twenty one. And then the publication date will be February of 22. So I'll email you and remind you, remember a year and a half ago, you thought it was interesting. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll still think it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's gonna be a while yet, but the, the working title right now is a better instinct, um, but we'll see where that ends up landing. That could very well change. But yeah, February of uh, 22 is when it's scheduled to release. Yeah, I like being allergic to meat. I try to be positive. So, you know, the the, goal, the the good part of a long timeline is you get all of the input and all of the opportunities to improve the book. And the thing I do love about publishers is you get to work with very professional editors, very professional designers. So in the end it will be well worth the time. But yeah, at this point it does make it feel I will have been working on this project for about six years when it finally publishes, which seems like a very long time.
0: And it's through Zondervan, correct? It is,
1: yeah, yeah. I was very thankful uh, to be able to, they acquired the book a few months ago and started working on it.
0: So, what I'm curious about is when you're going through those changes, um, you know, I know you started out the book talking about Samson, but then they wanted to add other uh, biblical figures to it. What did that whole process teach you about your faith? Because I know that's a really huge change.
1: Yeah, I had a completed manuscript on Samson that I had paid personally to have edited through a couple rounds of edits, just really wanting to improve as a writer. And so when they came to me, basically the idea was to take that entire manuscript on Samson, about 70,000 words, and condense it into one chapter of the new book, <laughs> which proved to be the most difficult part of that whole book yet, right? Like it was easier to start from scratch than to try to condense. Um, my first... in. Inclination when they pitched me the idea was no <laughs> and then uh the more time I, I said but i'm gonna think about it let me work on it and um the more time i spent sort of thinking really the idea is they wanted to broaden the audience to include more men i was primarily r- writing to millennial men men kind of my age that need for adventure right i've got a car payment and a job and a wife and two kids and there's not a ton of adventuring these days in my life right and so that need what do you do with that restlessness that's still inside of you um but the new book will speak to a much broader range of men because these, these instincts come in seasons. They come sometimes with age. Uh, and so I want to produce a book that not just helps one particular man understand his instincts, but really can help us understand how we think about instincts through all of the stages of life, the ones behind us, the ones to come, the ones that'll be at my son's life. And so the book's going to be a lot better for that. And I began to realize as time went on, um, you know, if writing a book was the cost, Well, and the other part of it is I'm a better writer than I was at the beginning of that. So there was something of that that excited me too. Like, I think I can handle this better than I could have before. But if all that work was what was required to sort of get this opportunity and and I was resonating, I did feel like it was something God was doing and was helping me. I felt some insights along the way that felt like encouraging to me on the process. Then, hey, if that's what God's asking me to do, I'll be faithful to it. You know, if it means a couple more years, so be it. Absolutely.
0: I think having that broader audience will be good too. It makes it more, more timeless um, but I'm, i right now, I'm just thinking of like Gen Z, like they, they're going to need stuff like that for sure.
2: So kind of an odd question. Your book is clearly going to be a nonfiction based, uh, book. Do you find that people generally expect or assume that pastors should only write nonfiction?
1: Yeah, it's usually like a like, well, let's put it this way. Nobody's surprised when I say that that's what I'm doing. Right. It makes sense. Although I think people think like, oh, you just take your sermons and turn them into a book. And I wish it was that simple. Usually what I think happens is in a sermon series, you get you get like 60, 70 percent of the way there and you realize, oh, there's that other 30 or 40 percent that I want to go spend a year digging into because there's more to that story than I could nail down in a week before I had to move on to the next one. Um, but yeah, nonfiction has been, uh, is something, uh, that's been important to me. Although the Bible itself is primarily, I'm going to use the word fiction and that it's narrative. I don't mean that it's fictitious, but it's written in a story format, a fiction format, a narrative format. And that the art form of that in the Bible has become more and more important to me as a writer, recognizing what the biblical authors are doing and really caring about how, in my opinion, how well-written and how powerful those narratives of scripture are.
0: Yeah, plus poetry is a big part of that too.
1: Yeah, huge. Yeah, and and learning those com- Conventions of Hebrew poetry and recognizing how you know. I think particularly I love First and Second Samuel for biblical narrative because uh, I think the David and Saul stories. I think they're as well written as as any narrative. Right. So Dostoevsky is a famous Russian uh, novelist who's known for his sort of psychological writing, like his deep understanding of human nature. I think the First and Second Samuel have that kind of psychology at work in them. The 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 way the people relate to Saul, the way Saul wrestles with who he is as king, the interaction with David, the expectations, the failures. I mean, we call it, that's an ancient piece of literature, right? But yet the humanity of it is just astonishing to me. And the more time you spend in it, the more you begin to realize it's not just sort of this happened, then this happened, then this happened. There's a real narrative art form involved. And there's a writer who's taking the time to craft those narratives, not in such a way that they're untrue. I believe, and this is my conviction, that these things actually happen. But the way he's telling the story calls out that deeper human truth uh, because of the way that the story has been framed and presented to us. And poetry's that way too. As I've been working through the Psalms, I've been having more and more of an appreciation for how the Hebrew poets wrote and the kinds of ways that they communicated meaning through them. And learning that stuff is really, yeah, it's not as simple as like just nonfiction, right? Pastors tell people what to do. <laughs> step one, step two, step three. It's actually sort of that narrativeness of the story and the poetry of the story that I think carries so much of the weight and significance and meaning of what the Bible does.
0: So something I've heard uh, in, in circles and groups in the church over the years is this fight of, I don't want to call it a fight, but sort of this argument for people to not listen to music that is, you know, not Christian music, not not gospel-centric, not, not worship music, stuff like that. Um, and I think that's carried over a little bit into the books that Christians read uh, as well. I think... We have a tendency to shy away from just the great fiction writers that are out there. And what I'm curious about is if you think uh, Christians should dwell into books that are not necessarily written from a Christian perspective.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I do a lot, so be frank from that from the beginning. A lot of my writing, you know, I'm quoting and alluding and referencing, you know, novels that are considered sort of the great novels, and, and I enjoy those. My wife's a huge novel reader, so we've got we've got this little reading room where I have books, and she's got—it's a, a, actually a scratch-off poster of the 100 Greatest Novels, and so as she reads one, she scratches it off and goes on to the next, Right. Um, so we do, um, we do listen to some secular music too. So maybe I'm on that side. I always think there's a matter of, of, of personal conviction that I think you should be sensitive to, right? Because I say this is a great novel and you should read it. If for some reason you feel like the spirit's saying, this is not the time, the season or for you, you should obey that, right? Like there's, you're not missing out on anything by being faithful to the convictions of conscience. And, and I don't, I'm not disparaging to that in any way to the person who says, I only want to listen to Christian music. And by the way, there are some great Christian novelists. I think this is an area the church is growing in recently. I see, I hear more and more writers telling me that maybe listen to the podcast that what they want to do is fiction. There's some new Christian fiction podcasts. I think this is an area of real growth, and there's also a lot of great Christian writers who don't write what you would call Christian novels. And they're just good novelists who happen to be Christian. So I think that's an interesting category. Um, I do think if the church was to say unless it's published by a Christian publisher, is Christian uh, fiction, you know, we're not going to read it. I think we would miss out on what is are big conversations that the church has an opportunity to weigh into. So much of how I understand what's going on in culture is not just from reading whatever the pop book is, right, but sort of reading some of the great works of literature or really trying to under some philosophical books. That can go for novelists, too. A lot of times novelists are dealing with big cultural trends. Um, They are setting kind of language and trajectory for culture. So I think you should be frank about why you're doing it, right? Like if you're just reading trashy novels because you enjoy reading trashy novels and you say, I'm learning culture, Right. like, I think there's a line. Um, and I also don't think you should read novels just because I'm a Christian and I'm going to you know, dissect this and better understand culture. There's a place for a good story as a form of entertainment or a form of perspective that I think is fine. Um, do it with a level of sensitivity. Um, be honest about why you're approaching it and doing it. And I think most Christians have a kind of maturity to be able to, to, if they are honest with themselves to recognize when, and what's the right place. There are definitely books I wouldn't read, you know, just like there are movies I wouldn't watch. And there, there's hard lines we draw as a family on, on some of those movies and music, and that would hold true for books as well too. Um, but there's great documentaries. There's great movies I love that aren't technically Christian movies or Christian documentaries that are still, I think, good and helpful and, and interesting.
0: So I discovered who you were because I was in search of podcasts about the intersection of faith and writing. Um, I actually, when I started looking, started that search, uh, I didn't find a whole lot. Um, It's just not a lot out there as far as podcasts go for Christians that are also writers. Um, But thankfully, I found your podcast, uh, Pastor Writer Podcast. Um, Could you tell our listeners, you know, just a little bit about your podcast and um, what led you to start it?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it's been uh, a real fun to get to do. I've been doing it about two and a half years, and uh, I interview primarily authors. In the early days, the show was a lot about the craft of writing. In fact, I was even interviewing some agents and interviewing some publishers, and it was really about me trying to figure out what does it mean to be a pastor and a writer, and where do those things overlap, and and how does one contribute to the other. Um, as time has gone by, it's sort of evolved to be more conversations about the books I'm reading or books that I think are interesting. So there's always sort of a, a component about the writing process or the writer who wrote the book. But a lot of times it's just talking about, I thought this was a really interesting book and I'd love to have a conversation with the author who wrote it. And so, yeah, Some t- I always want to say to people, maybe it's a bad name, uh, PastorWriter.com was available, and that's always the hardest part of the equation, is getting that .com. But I, uh, I always want to say to people, PastorWriter reflects who I am coming into these conversations. It doesn't have to reflect who you are as a listener. You don't have to be a pastor and a writer to find it interesting. But it's usually conversations with authors that I respect, or I, I always read something of the author before I have them on. So if it's a book I'm talking about, I read the book. If it's an article, that's been a real challenge to sort of my, my reading goals and my prioritization of it, but it's something I've been really committed to. So anybody I have on, I at least have a good idea about what they're coming on to speak about when it comes to the book itself. And so I hope what it is for people is a way for them to find new books to read that are helpful. And if nothing else, to hear and be exposed to some of the interesting conversations that writers are contributing to the church through the books that they're producing. And then also along the way to learn some of that craft of writing for pastors, for people who are interested in writing, or maybe people just that love books and are interested in hearing about how they were written.
0: And why, why do you think it's important for pastors to learn more about reading and just the craft of writing?
1: Yeah, uh, well, for one, our conversation about the importance of Scripture as a narrative form. Me writing and stumbling my way into it has helped me appreciate how well-written the Bible is. So to give you an example... um, we were talking about first and second Samuel. There's the story of Mephibosheth, uh, which is uh, Saul's grandson who was lame, who broke his legs and probably wasn't able to walk uh, during his escape when David was coming to power. It's really interesting the way Mephibosheth's story weaves in because you get this um, you get this introduction to Mephibosheth totally out of place. It's just dropped in the middle of a David story and then right back to David, and you have no explanation for why. It took two sentences to just tell you that Saul had a grandson who was named Aphibosheth, who was dropped when he was fleeing and to this day is in hiding and lame. Then you get David taking Jerusalem, and there's this great little scene where they line the city walls with the blind and the lame people of the city to sort of mock David, you know, our weakest citizens could defend you. Uh, And David gets sort of upset in a moment of passion and says, no blind and lame will be allowed to live in the city of David. So when he conquers the city, he basically says, and if it's David at the moment, this is my city, the city of David, where I'll build palaces and I'll build a temple and I'll consolidate my power. It's going to be a perfect city. He's starting to accumulate um, and they're not going to have blind, lame people. Now, you know, that catches your attention because a few chapters before you got introduced to, wait a minute, David made a promise to Jonathan that he would love Jonathan's descendants like he loved Jonathan himself. Then you got this random drop. Oh, Jonathan has a descendant, Mephibosheth. Then you get this story of David cursing the blind and the lame from being in his city, and it opens up a huge tension for the careful reader. How can David fulfill both promises? How can he purge the city and make it perfect without those blind and lame people, but also love Jonathan, whose only descendant is now a lame son? Um, And that all comes out now plays out later on in the Mephibosheth story when David calls Mephibosheth to the palace. Now somebody has been really intentional about sort of placing those breadcrumbs of that story to build the anticipation for that moment, right? Um that's a writer that's what a writer does right he hasn't changed the facts it's not he hasn't made this up but he's chosen to give us information at certain times to foreshadow and to raise the stakes so a person who loves to read and tries their hand at writing and tries to learn a little bit of the craft of writing starts to notice those things i think in the scripture and the way the scripture is being written in a really helpful way there's a lot of reasons as pastors you're primarily handling words through sermons uh a lot of pastors manuscript those sermons i do as well too so you're physically doing writing for those sermons but at the end of the day even if you if you never publish a book or a blog post learning to appreciate good writing i think helps you appreciate how well written the bible is in that little tiny example i think they're scattered all over the bible in ways that help you really understand and appreciate and enjoy those biblical stories more
0: absolutely um I actually have a, a degree in English literature. Oh, do you really? I do, I do. Uh, right, be, right before I graduated, I got to sit down with a poetry professor, mm-hmm. and he was like, he was just shooting the breeze. He's like, so what, what's your plan after this? I was like, well, I think I'm going to go to seminary. And I was a little nervous about that because I went to a, a super secular public college, mm-hmm. and I was just like, I'm going to seminary. Uh-huh. And I expected him to just lay into me and be like, oh, that's a stupid idea. Um, but instead, he, he looked at me, he's like... That's really great. I think more pastors or church leaders could benefit from having a background in, in literature and reading and writing, and especially poetry. And that's always stuck with me. Anyway, I don't think it was until a couple of years ago where it hit me. Um, I was reading something, I don't know what it was, in the Bible, and I noticed all these little intricate details connecting together um, because I had that background in literature. So just to, just to like echo what you're saying, I think it's... yeah. I think it's so important for people to just be invested in what it means to actually read something uh, for the sake of understanding it better rather than just to mark a task off your list.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. I've often thought if any of my kids wanted to be in ministry, I think that's a great path to go and study, you know, English of some sort, you know, study study how to read in the great classical works and then bring that to the text. Um, I I think that's, you probably have as much or more to say on this as I do. So I sort of stumbled my way into it, you know, after, after Bible college and didn't get nearly as much in seminary as I would have liked of, you know, narrative feature of the Bible poetry in the Bible. But yeah, I think it's huge and it's fun, right? Like when you discover that stuff and you're like, oh, I, I see what that writer was doing two, three, 4,000 years ago. That's an incredible experience to recognize the art of what he's doing. And the fact he's using all of his faculties that he has as a writer to convey this thing that's so meaning. Like I know sitting there trying to figure out the best way to say this, to highlight the significance of what I'm trying to say and to see the biblical author doing that. There's so much humanity, but so much divinity in it too, right? This is the best way to say that.
0: Absolutely. I know like that connected with me the most, like reading through the book of Jonah. Cause in the past I was like, Oh, this is such a like dour, sad, not good book. But then I read it and I was like, Oh, this is a comedy. It's just, yeah. There's just some really funny moments in Jonah. so
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think Axe, the other one of my favorite examples I share is I think Luke, when he writes Axe, knows the risk of big personalities taking over the storyline. And he litters the book of Axe with all of these little minor characters. Like, I love the story of when Peter shows up at the house having escaped from prison. And they're praying for him. And he knocks on the door and a little girl answers the door. And she gets so excited that it's Peter that she runs to tell everyone else and forgets to open the door and unlock it which is so ironic because he literally just walked out of jail, but now he's stuck standing outside. And it serves no purpose in the, in the event, in the release of Peter. It could have been totally skipped. Like, why does somebody remember that, right? Or put that in that story? Other than Peter wants to include this little girl that gets so excited about Peter that she forgets to unlock the door. Like, she's in on this story. I think Luke is really intentional about those kinds of stories to keep Axe from falling into... The great men, right? Which they are, of Paul and Peter. Um, it's no, no, no. It's also the story of little girls who get excited about miracles. Like all that stuff gets me so excited because you see a human, you know, involved in these things. This isn't made up. This is somebody remembering these details
0: and telling the story in a really powerful way. That that's great. That's really great. So where where can people find out more about your upcoming book, your uh, the podcast, the writer, Pastor Rider podcast, or just, Anything else Chase Rep Logal's up to you?
1: Sure. Well, Chase Replogal is hard to spell. So you can <laughs> go to chasereplogal.com, but I I took me forever to learn to spell it. So pastorwriter.com are much simpler words for everyone to spell and you can find all my information there. Um, you know, usually if, if you're interested um, I've got a list of books that I think are helpful to Christians. You can download. I've got a resource on there for books that I recommend for people interested in writing. If nothing else, you know, shoot me an email, I'd love to connect or um, I'm pretty active on Twitter uh, Instagram. And Facebook. You'll find me there, The Pastor Writer. Uh, but yeah, always happy to. I'd love people to be able to listen to the podcast. If it's helpful, let me know. If there's things you'd like to hear or guess you think would be good, let me know. I'm always always happy to
2: listen to feedback. I have to say, it, it's it's a good listen. Um, I've enjoyed the Max Licator one, uh, the Darwin Gray, specifically two that stick out to my mind. Um, but I, I personally recommend it.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks. And it's fun, man. I love getting to do, at first it was kind of like, all right, every week I'm going to do it And now it's one of the highlights of my week every week. And I feel really spoiled because basically I just, I mean, you guys probably feel this way with the podcast. I just get to have com- fun conversations with people that without the podcast, I wouldn't have an excuse to get to call up and have a conversation with. So it's been a, it's been a real blessing. I, I love doing it.
0: Yeah, it's great to sit down and talk with people.
1: Yeah, it is. I always feel like I end up kind of sort of friends with people. And then I have to remind myself like, no, they were promoting a book. They don't actually want... <laughs> they don't actually know me, right? I don't get to just call them up and go have dinner sometime. Although many of them would. They're always such great guests. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun to get to spend time with people.
0: If you're ever in Chattanooga, Tennessee, just hit us up.
1: <laughs> Dude, I'll take you up on it. One of these days when we crawl out of COVID, and I cross <laughs> state lines again. So. Yeah, I think Missouri just got added to the list. If you came here, you have to quarantine for 14 days when you return home. So I better come there, not <laughs> you here.
2: <laughs> What's a verse or passage that has meant a lot to you? Um, not necessarily just now in, in COVID, but in the entirety of your life.
1: Yeah, I'll give you one recently that has been um, for this season. I've been really interested in the uh, the ironic blessing, Numbers chapter 6, the blessing that Aaron, God gives Aaron to speak over the people. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may he make his face to shine upon you uh, and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and give you peace. Um, I do this funny thing with my kids where I'll, sometimes when they're leaving or at night, I'll put my hands on their head and I'll quote that, that blessing over them. I love uh, in number six, it says at the end of that blessing, because God's giving this to Moses to give to Aaron, it says, and by this, you'll put my name on my people. And I don't know why, but that phrase just really stuck with me, that this blessing puts God's name on people. Um, I come from a sort of Pentecostal background. Uh, Blessing as a formal practice is not something I grew up with. It's not a part of sort of, I mean, people, you know, let me bless you. (laughs) Here's a little cash. Let me bless you that way. You know, there's some of that. Um, But as far as like, uh, I've gotten to spend some time with some Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors, and they're really intentional about practicing blessing. So it's very common, um, you know, for them. In fact, I had this experience with them. You know, put, they'd put their hand on you and speak a blessing over you. And I found that to be such a powerful experience. A lot of my experience has been, you know, do this, don't do this. This is how you're supposed to act. Let me give you some advice. Uh, how are you doing? You know, let's talk about how you're doing, some accountability type stuff. But that experience of somebody speaking the words of God over you, not as a advice, right? Not as a prayer, God, let this be, but as a, this is what is true, right? The Lord bless you and keep you and give you peace and uh, I found that to be such an encouraging practice for this moment, and I've been trying to incorporate more of it in my own pastoring. Right, like there are times I can stand on that promise God gave you that promise. Let me speak that promise over you. That's His word; it's not mine. I'm just reminding you of this thing that you know. Right, blessing you with what you know. Uh, and Aaron's blessing has been a sort of way into that. My kids may be annoyed by it, but I, I'll put I'll put that name on them as much as God will give me the chance to do it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mountain and Valley Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. Just search underscore MV podcast on any platform. Again, that's underscore M as in Mountain, V as in Valley podcast. This podcast was created and produced by Michael Horvath and Kip Wilkinson. This episode was mastered and scored by J.A. Parkey. Thank you so much for listening. Now go tell your story.
1: I got you guys. Hey, do you are we doing video or just audio? I'm fine either way. I didn't know if you released video. I've just got actually I have kind of funny. I have like a free U-Haul t-shirt that some that I got from somewhere at some point. So there you go. So (laughs) but if it's helpful for the conversation, I'm happy to have it on.